Over the years, the United States has grappled with how to provide housing for the people who live here, particularly for those who make the lowest incomes. Taking a long historical view, that housing challenge started as the population grew and urbanized. In the 19th century, as the Industrial Revolution and urbanization took off, housing shortages and housing quality got more and more attention. This was especially true at the end of the century when broader public attention was really drawn to the living conditions in New York City tenements, and tenement reform efforts spread from New York to some of the other major urban centers at the time. Much of this was philanthropic, uh, and when the government did get involved, it started with building code changes. It wasn't until the New Deal and the creation of the Public Works Administration that federally funded housing came into being as part of a planned solution. And in the 1930s, there was a series of housing acts passed. The FHA was created at this time, and then the first public housing was built after the Housing Act of 1937. And in 1939, as part of the first big real wave of public housing, 50,000 units were constructed. And since then, public housing efforts have evolved, and there have been some major changes and challenges. You know, often in the public in, uh, imagination, public housing is thought of together with urban renewal, and a lot of it was built as a result of the Housing Act of 1949. You know, big housing projects, that barracks-style mega blocks, and the uh, Le Corbusier-style towers in the park. And the symbolic death of that model was the demolition of the Pruitt-Igo Towers in St. Louis in the early 70s. With the Housing Act of 1968 and the Housing Act of 1974, the model shifted again. The federal government experimented with how the private sector might get involved in providing affordable housing. A few experiments with different program designs ultimately led to the creation of the Section 8 program, initially as a project-based subsidy. The mobile vouchers, which provided more choice about where to live, came a little later, together with changes in building design that were more neighborhood appropriate, like townhouses and regular street patterns. This is essentially the model that's been in place since. But now we're in the midst of another period of change, and it's rad. Welcome to the Freddie Mac Multifamily Podcast. I'm Steve Guggenmoss. And I'm Corey Aber, and today we're going to talk about the next chapter in the history of assisted rental housing in the U.S., HUD's Rental Assistance Demonstration Program, a.k.a. RAD. In 2012, when RAD was created, there were roughly 1.1 million public housing units in the country. Those units needed about $26 billion to deal with deferred maintenance. Today, estimates range from $35 billion to $70 billion or more. In addition, other properties were at risk for other reasons, like those built through the experimental programs in the late 1960s and early 1970s. RAD's mission is to preserve this affordable housing. And that's no small task. You know, we're fortunate today uh, to be joined by someone who knows RAD probably better than anyone else right now, Tom Davis. Tom is the director of the Office of Recapitalization at HUD, which means he's essentially in charge of the RAD program and are trying to put these properties on a sustainable trajectory. So, Tom, thanks so much for being here today. Thanks for having me. Glad to be here. All right. So, Tom, maybe we should just start with, with the basics. Uh, what is RAD? So, at its core, RAD is just shifting properties from one regulatory platform to another, from public housing to the Section 8 platform or from some of the more legacy programs, like the Rent Supplement and RAP programs, which were those 1960s, early 70s experiments, to the Section 8 platform. All of everything that pulls RAD together is moving from one regulatory platform 
to the Section 8 platform. So that's sort of the most basic, um, but the implication of that is that it opens up for the owners, whether it's private owners or public housing authorities, the ability to access capital, the ability to get long-term uh, subsidy contracts that can be underwritten by lenders or investors, and the ability to tap into all of the sources of financing that the rest of the affordable housing uh, industry uses to to recapitalize and maintain properties. All right, all right, and and there are you know if I remember sort of two different aspects of of RAD as well, right? Yeah, so we refer to them as component one and component two. Um, component one is the public housing side. Um, so RAD for public housing, component one, sort of interchangeable phrasing. Uh, component two is RAD for everything else. RAD for the rent supplement and RAP programs. RAD for the moderate rehab programs. And just recently, Congress authorized RAD for conversion of some of the Section 202 uh, housing for the elderly uh, properties. Oh, that that's fantastic. Um, and and I think you know before we get into some of the, those details because there's a whole lot to to cover in each of those parts of the program, um, you know, so why RAD? Like, you know, what what motivated HUD uh, to come up with this program? So the the initial motivation, as you mentioned, was the capital backlog in public housing. Um, that was uh, the at the time it was twenty six billion dollars. That's just to repair things that are past their useful life at that moment. Not to modernize, not to make it better, but just to keep it functioning. Um, and then uh, the conversation about the RAD Component 2 was a lot of the initial pro programs that were covered by RAD Component 2 were properties where they had a 40-year use restriction. That use restriction was burning off, um, and there was risk of the properties converting to market or um, not being uh, maintained as affordable. Uh, so the preservation effort to preserve those, not from a deterioration of the property reason, but preservation relative to converting to market. So as you do a preservation and get it to the point that it, it, it you extend the useful life, is there a target um, length of the addition of useful life? Yeah, so certainly all of our underwriting is focused on the next 20 years because trying to predict the capital needs of a property beyond 20 years is really kind of fiction. Um, so when we do an analysis of, for example, of a, of a public housing property, we, in order to participate in RAD, the housing authority needs to demonstrate that they can cover all of the capital needs that a 20-year third-party analysis of the property uh, indicates or Will need to be replaced in that time frame. So, so actually, the, then on that on that note, so with the with RAD for public housing uh, component one, so if you're talking about twenty years, you know, does that mean that twenty years is sort of the end of long term affordability with them, or or some something definitely not. Um, public housing, as you know, starts from the the context of being perpetually affordable. So RAD very much was designed to replicate that for the public housing uh, portfolio. So even though the normal Section 8 contract is a 20-year contract, um, the in, in RAD, we keep that structure of a 20-year contract, but we require the owner, the housing authority, or their development team that they've formed a public-private partnership around, um, must ask for a renewal, and HUD must 
uh, grant the renewal. So even though it's technically a 20-year thing, it is a perpetual, um, and that renewal has to be renewed, and that renewal has to be renewed, so it is a perpetual affordability restriction. Right. So, so is the view then that, that uh, just this process, Section 8 process, uh, is, is just more cost-effective, more reliable? Yeah, it's a, it's a known platform. It's been around since the early 70s. Um, it uh, has had folks using it and working with the capital markets and working with renewals and uh, sort of knowing – people know how to work with the Section 8 platform to uh, maintain a, a, a property for over the long term. Uh, it's also known from the residents' perspective. Like public housing, Section 8 residents pay 30 percent of their income in rent. Um, so it's uh, treating the, the residents the same in terms of their uh, their contribution to the housing. Um, but unlike, unlike public housing, Section 8 is much more flexible and allows the housing authorities to figure out how to finance their, the needs of the property and gives the housing authorities more flexibility in asset managing their portfolio for the long term. So to give a couple examples, um, public housing is very constrained in its ability to borrow, uh, to take out a loan, to borrow debt. So when the housing authority has, a, has capital needs, they're given uh, capital funds from the federal government a certain amount every year. If you can't do those repairs you need, with that in one year, you might need to break it down into a couple years. And of course, that's more expensive to mobilize uh, one year and then demobilize halfway through the project and remobilize later when you have more money. And so it's more efficient to be able to borrow money and do it all at once. Yeah. I, I imagine the other would be more tenant disruptive as well, right? It can be. Yes. Yeah. Now, certainly, rad transactions can be disruptive to the tenants as well, particularly when there's a lot of need at a property. When a property needs fifty, sixty, a hundred thousand dollars worth of work per unit, sometimes the tenants just it can't live in the property while that work is happening, and and we need to have temporary relocation so that the tenants move out of the building and then move back in when it's done. But one of the nice things about Red is that there are a ton of tenant protections around that. So uh, Red. In the public housing context, RAD has a required right to return so that the tenants uh, who put up with the hassle of living in a deteriorated property and who have put up with the hassle of the relocation are guaranteed the, the ability to enjoy the fruits of the, of the revitalization. And you mentioned the fifty dollars to $60,000 could be a, a high amount spent per unit. Is there, is there an average or, or typical range that you see? The range is sort of in the twenty-five dollars to 30000 but there are some red conversions that are spending way more than that. Um, it all depends on what the 20-year capital needs assessment indicates. Uh, but some housing authorities have even uh, decided to tear down the property and rebuild it from the ground up. Um, and in some cases, the RAD allows the flexibility to say, you know, this isn't the right place for housing at all, and we're going to move the housing, the, the assisted housing, to a different location. So, for example, there's one city that has um, a 300-plus unit public housing complex that is surrounded on all sides by freeways. Um, not a particularly great place to live uh, and to raise your kids. Um, and so that housing authority is moving 
those 300 plus units in increments of 20 to 50 units into developments that are 200 to 500 units of apartments and the uh, the Section 8 units are less than 10% of the units in that uh, new development. So uh, instead of being a whole bunch of public housing units concentrated in one spot, cut off from the rest of the community by highways, it's a small percentage of a development that has all sorts of other amenities that might be uh, appropriate in the market. Right. So then you can undo some of that towers in the park and the, and the barrack style. Yep. Uh, yep. And that one qualifies for RAD because it exists as public housing now, but then you have a lot of flexibility um, as to how, to how to work with that. That's right. Mm-hmm. So RAD is not giving the housing authority new money. It's budget neutral. Um, it is just delivering the money to the housing authority under a regulatory platform that is more flexible. So it's shifting from a, uh, a very um, structured regulatory platform to a more flexible regulatory platform, same amount of money, and the housing authorities and their development teams have been able to do really incredible things with it. Um, to put it a little bit in perspective, um, about 114,000 units have converted under RAD so far, and those units have, uh, those projects have um, secured over $7 billion, with a B, dollars for uh, construction at those properties. And if those housing authorities had tried to rely on the capital money that the federal government was appropriating, it would have taken them 46 years to accumulate that amount of money to do work. So in five years, they've done $7.1 billion billion worth of work. (laughs) That's just put in that context that we talked about in the intro. That's that's pretty incredible. It is. It's a historic achievement. What was the the sense at at HUD when when you all sort of figured this idea out, that you could make something that is budget neutral but also so transformative? So I think that uh, I personally wasn't involved in the original formulation of the idea, but I think that the um, there at the time it's people didn't know whether it would work. You know, people had originally been proposing a uh, a plan that would have funded uh, the Section Eight at a higher level than the Rad Section Eight units come, and Congress said, "No, we're not going to give you all that extra money that uh, the administration was asking for." But if you can do it without additional money, let's see how it works. Um, so initially, it was authorized for uh, only 60,000 units as, as an experiment. Um, the experiment has grown um, as people have demonstrated that you really can do quite a lot with this uh, additional uh, flexibility. So I guess that begs the question. So it's called rental assistance demonstration, but you keep being able to do more. Is it always going to be called RAD? Uh, I think it's a good name. Um, the, uh, uh, so right now it's still a demonstration. Um, I think that, uh, being, we are still experimenting. Um, we are still, uh, the demonstration has grown a lot, but we are still playing around with, can we offer a slightly different structure that allows people to stretch the dollars more than, uh, they've been able to, to do so far. Um, and, uh, that demonstration quality allows us to continue uh, exploring new ways of doing things and allows us to continue being receptive when uh, the housing authorities uh, come up with new ideas of how they could 
take the resources that they currently have and deploy them in ways that are more effective in their communities. As you think about the different public housing authorities that have gotten involved, is it is it you know the same communities coming back and doing and doing it over and over, or is it is it growing and across you know, and is it big big communities, smaller communities? You know, it's it's all sorts of housing authorities. Um, definitely, there are housing authorities that came to you know do one deal through RAD, see how it went, put their toe in the water, and then have come back with more. Um, we've seen quite a number of housing authorities convert their entire public housing portfolio. Um, and uh, we've also compared the participation in RAD with sort of the housing authority portfolio generally. And they actually correspond pretty closely to the rest of the portfolio, the distribution of urban and rural housing authorities, the distribution of small, medium, and large housing authorities. Um, they're pretty consistent with the portfolio as a whole. So uh, we're seeing all sorts of housing authorities from very small ones to, to, the, to the biggest. It's great too that a lot of that data is is available uh, for for those of us in the in the research world to uh, yeah we've tried to a little bit we've tried to be pretty transparent with uh, the data and there's a fair amount of data on the on the RAD website about who is participating what properties what ho- housing authorities and and what they're doing with their properties. So Tom, can we talk process a little bit? Um, uh, maybe so. I'd like to look at it. So component one, what does the process look like there? And component two, because you have you have those sort of different pieces, uh, what's the process like there? And and uh, I think you know, I get questions about that uh, when I'm on the road. So, sure. So, uh, so let's take first red for public housing uh, component one. Um, a housing authority applies, and we have made the application. Very easy because uh, RAD is still limited. There's a a cap on the number of public housing units that um, can participate in RAD, and we don't want any housing authority wasting a lot of time and effort and money on trying to put together a deal without knowing that they can uh, participate in the program. So the the application is is a a very low bar, uh, mostly an eligibility application. And then we give them what's called a CHAP, a commitment to enter into a housing assistance payment contract, not quite CHAP, um, if you release Yeah, there's a couple extra letters in there, but we call it a CHAP. Um, and once they have the CHAP, they know what their rents would be. They know that they're able to participate. And then they have a, a period of time to do the due diligence, make sure that it really works, um, put together their financing plan, figure out what their capital needs are. Um, and some housing authorities can do that pretty quickly. Some need a fair amount of time uh, to do that. Uh, and then they submit a financing plan to us. And that's when they're really describing what they're actually going to do at the property. Um, we review that financing plan. There are uh, fair housing reviews. There's the underwriting of the numbers themselves. There's uh, a variety of reviews, uh, reviews for making sure that the relocation and tenant rights are, are protected. Um, and we issue the RAD conversion commitment. Uh, there, the acronym matches. We call it an RCC. And uh, then once they have the RCC, they start putting together their uh, the legal documents, and then we get to a closing. And at the closing, the conversion happens, and the property switches from being public housing to being Section 8. And then they do the construction work after that. Uh, so so it's a, it's a, sounds like a few steps. So there's a closing with HUD to make the conversion. Yep. Then there's do the construction work, probably under construction loan. That's right. Then there's... Sometimes permanent a permanent debt, loan. Yeah. Uh, uh, 
over that. So, so it can take a fair amount of time, uh, requires advanced planning. From beginning to end, some housing authorities can go pretty quickly, and for some housing authorities, it's a several-year project. Yeah, I, I imagine it depends on how big the scope is, right? So San Francisco, El Paso, you know, really big scope. Yep. Uh, uh, and also, you know, some housing authorities are have the staff who have been doing development work all the way along, and others are learning what it what these kinds of transactions are. Um, and sometimes the uh, some of the rad unit rad projects involve low income housing tax credits, which is a new area for some of the the housing authorities participating. And so it takes it sometimes takes a little while for them to figure all the pieces out. Um, and also sometimes there's more of a of a uh, strategic planning process that the housing authority goes through with the residents, with the community, with their board, um, particularly if they're doing uh, a lot of their portfolio, there are implications for the uh, for the agency it, itself. There are uh, changes to how they uh, end up organizing themselves and and their, and their finances, their staffing, their the training for their their team, all of those things. So I'm getting off the process question a little bit, but we'll come back okay. to comp component two. But uh, what do the residents think of this? So certainly. RAD can be kind of scary for the residents. Um, there's a lot of change, particularly, you know, they've public housing is familiar, Section 8 sometimes not so much. Um, if there's significant construction, there's all the question of, do I stay in my unit, do I not? Um, so it's really important for the housing authorities to be talking to the residents and answering questions and explaining what they're planning to do. Uh, so some of the initial resident reaction is often nervousness about that change. Um, and certainly having, you know, done a significant renovation in my own house, it's disruptive. Um, it's, uh, it's a real pain. Um, but uh, uh, at the same time, the residents are um, often getting, uh, well, in, in red for public housing, the residents get new rights, like the ability to access a mobile voucher um, after a certain period of time, which they didn't have as public housing residents. Um, and they're getting a significantly improved uh, property. Um, and so uh, the residents, uh, most of the residents I talk to as they are going through the process and, and uh, after the, the process is done are really pretty happy about the, the condition of their units, the condition of their properties, um, the, uh, you know, the end result, um, even if it was a fair amount of uh, change and sometimes stress in the process. So it's important for the housing authorities to be aware and for everybody else involved, the developer partners, the um, you know everybody involved in the financing to be aware of um, how this is this can be disruptive uh, for the residents, particularly when it's a lot of investment per unit. you know when it's uh, not a, a big investment per unit, sometimes it's just replacing the roof or the boiler or something like that that's not that disruptive. But uh, certainly it can be for the residents. Uh, but I think that one of the things that makes uh, RAD uh, a really good program is that it was built in with the residents and it was built with the residents in mind. And a lot of resident protections are built into the, the structure of RAD. It seems like it's pretty clear that uh, that that was thought about up front, right, with the guarantees that they would have a place to come back to. 
And then I'm sure they're very happy about the quality of the of the housing unit when, when significant changes have have taken place. Yeah, um, they uh, you know the and and all of the current residents are uh, protected in coming back. There's no rescreening, even if new um, new financing is put in place. We require that the housing authority and the developers make sure that um, the uh, the new financing doesn't dislodge the right the right to return. Um, there are uh, some of the public housing protections, like uh, grievance processes and that kind of thing, are imported into the into the RAD Section 8 contracts. Um, so there are quite a lot of resident protections, or uh, also around relocation and uh, that kind of thing. So, so with the uh, you know, uh, conversions of public housing, does any of it happen without new financing, or is it all is it always rehab? So it does sometimes happen without new financing. If if a property is in really good shape, um, the housing authority may uh, just do what I sometimes refer to as a straight conversion. They're just changing from the public housing platform to the Section 8 platform. Uh, sometimes they do it and capitalize a big replacement reserve. They don't have immediate needs, but they know that the roof is going to need to be replaced in three years. So we require them to set aside the money uh, for that. Um, so there are definitely properties that go through a RAD conversion without new financing brought to brought to the table. Is that the minority of properties, though? Uh, certainly, the it's a it's around half of the properties that do it with just either no new financing or public housing financing or other public financing. Um, and then about half of the properties bring in commercial debt or low-income housing tax credits. Um, so there's a yeah, there's a fair supply that um, where the housing authorities are making the conversion and are tapping into local money um, or using uh, the housing authorities' own money. That some of it being federal money, some uh, might be non-federal funds from other activities they've done. So it's about half and half. Okay, interesting. Um, so can we turn to component two? Sure. Rad for other multifamily. Yep. Um, so, uh, so. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so on, under component two, uh, what are the different you know others that that are that are included? Yeah. So they fall into three buckets. There's the rent supplement and wrap properties. Uh, wrap being rental assistance payments. Those were the late 1960s, early 70s experiments when people were playing around with how to um, how to bring the private sector in. Um, there were, when RAD started, about 30,000 of those units. We're down to eight properties left nationwide. Um, so uh, I think it's about six or 700 units. Um, so we are really trying to sort of wind down uh, the rents up and wrap programs. Um, so those two have... Uh, one set of, of rules. Um, then there are the mod rehab uh, properties and the uh, moderate rehabilitation uh, single-room occupancy properties, also sometimes referred to as the McKinney-Vento single-room occupancy units. So the mod rehab and the mod rehab SROs, um, there are about 30,000 of those units. Um, and then the newest, uh, which uh, is just about to uh, come online, are is the ability to convert the RAD uh, the convert to RAD, the 202 elderly housing project rental assistance contract properties. So uh, we refer to that as RAD for PRACs. 
Um, and there are about 120,000 units in that portfolio. Uh, that was authorized by Congress recently, and we're expecting to publish the rules for how that those conversions will work uh, in a handful of weeks. Wow. Yeah, but looking forward to that. And you know, clearly a uh, you know, big opportunity for impact. In that, There's a lot in of interest in the property. Radford Prax. The, uh, the owner community is, is really looking forward to it because the Prax are um, they're not as old. Um, the Prax have all been built since the, uh, since the, in the 90s or, or since. And, but they were built without really a plan for major recapitalization. They, they get a subsidy for their, based on their operating budget. Um, but that doesn't deal with what do you do when after 20 years, a whole bunch of systems start needing to be replaced and it needs a, a refresh. And so the, the PRAC portfolio um, is in good shape. They don't have a backlog right now the way public housing does. But if we don't do something like Radford PRACs, um, they would get a capital backlog. Which is particularly important, right, with the aging population that the, these It's a huge units, need. Yeah. Yeah. And, and yeah, under PRAC, and so as the uh, capital needs sort of build up, uh, so they can take on, you know, additional debt now, or does it need to be neutral? So the Radford Pracs are currently budget neutral. Um, so they get to shift over what their current uh, subsidy level is into their Section Eight uh, subsidy. Um, so there is some question as to how many of them will be able to convert on a budget neutral basis. Uh, some of them have been able to. Um, have re replacement reserve deposits that they'll be able to sort of rework into supporting uh, debt. Some of them will be able to use low-income housing tax credits. Um, and we'll see, you know, how how well it works. That's why it's a demonstration again. Um, but we're optimistic given that the public housing authorities were able to do a fair amount with budget-neutral uh, rent setting. Um, we're hopeful that the, the PRACs will be able to do a fair amount there. Uh, but there's certainly going to be a conversation at some point about whether some of the PRAC units um, need additional money in order to, to deal with it, with their capital needs. And I think that uh, you've talked about the 120,000 units that, that are potentially PRACs. Uh, and to date, there's been 114,000 units. Public Is that right? Public housing units. So... Um, as, as these projects come about, is there a target number of units or, or are there units that, that exist and then there's a target to, to keep in the market? Or So we don't really have a target quite like that. Mm -hmm. um, all of these programs are voluntary. And so what we're trying to do is provide tools for, uh, in the case of public housing, the, the housing authorities, and in the case of all the other programs, the owners, uh, to use if it makes sense for them. Uh, so... We, we certainly have a – there's a universe that could participate in RAD, um, but uh, we're not trying to um, sort of set a we want to hit so much. Um, well, actually, that's not totally true. We want to el eliminate the rents up wraps, um, <laughs> and uh, we would like to convert um, as many of the mod rehabs uh, as possible um, – the uh, the prax and the public housing, we want to make sure that this is a, a tool that is useful. Um, but we recognize that in both of those portfolios, 
at the budget neutral rent level, there will be some properties that it doesn't, the numbers don't work out to convert under RAD. So you said uh, for RAD for PRAC, right, you have an, an active owner group that's really interested in this. Uh, what about for the mod rehabs? What's the owner group like in that part of RAD? So the mod rehab owner group is a little harder to get uh, a connection to. Um, there are many more small owners in the mod rehab group. Um, and uh, so it's a it's a harder marketing to make them aware of the opportunities under RAD. Um, and uh, so, yeah, so that's a – they don't have a trade association the way – uh, the senior housing uh, folks do the way the public housing folks do, uh, so it's it's a little more of a challenge. Is there at least um, you know? So I've been I've been uh, you know out on the road a little bit as another part of my uh, of my day job, uh, and and in that you know I do talk to people about mod rehabs and and I've heard some interest, um, but part of the question is just you know because I think you know just looking at the data, not many of those units have been converted yet. Uh, so, like, what, what, uh, so how does that work? Uh, you know, what's the first step? You know, does it start with the uh, the housing authority or does it start with uh, the owner? So, like, let's imagine, you know, let's imagine an owner, we'll call him Josiah Carberry. What does he do? Yeah, so I often uh, think back to the, the example of an owner that I was working with a little while ago who, um, she her her father had built a bunch of mod rehab properties. She was the property the property manager and for the properties, and development was not in, you know, it was not her daily job. It was very unfamiliar to her. Um, so she knew she needed to do something. She needed uh, the properties needed a a lot of attention, um, and her lender was encouraging her to think about it. Um, but tax credits weren't familiar to her. Um, RAD certainly wasn't familiar to her until her lender said, you know, think about this. Um, and it took a while for her to get familiar with these tools. Um, ultimately, she decided that um, uh, she wanted to partner with a local nonprofit who was familiar with tax credits. Um, in the process, uh, uh, she had inherited these properties from her father, and in the process, she had to figure out the inheritance arrangements with her brother. Um and uh, it took, you know, a handful of years for her to figure out all of the questions that were raised by the, the conversion. So um, in her case, the starting place was talking to her lender and her lender saying, you know, you really need to be thinking about how you get from here to there. Um, in other cases, um, we've uh, the the mod rehabs right now are the funding flows through the local housing authority. So in other cases, we've done um, outreach events with the local housing authorities, and they have brought in all their mod rehab owners, and uh, we've explained the program and and done offered technical assistance and that kind of thing. Um, in other cases, the uh, the mod rehab owners hear about it from their lawyers or their con consultants or from their fellow mod rehab owners, it's 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 kind of a word of mouth kind of thing. Um, and, uh, you know, we, we have materials available. We send out uh, email blasts to the mod rehab owners that, um, that we know about. Um, but uh, because the money flows from HUD to the housing authorities and the housing authorities to the mod rehab owners, we don't have as much direct connection to the mod rehab owners. So we're more dependent on 
uh, folks uh, getting helping us spread the word. So, so does the mod rehab owner? So your real life example is better than my my imaginary <laughs> property owner. Um, but but uh, so would she have like you know filled out an application to HUD to convert or? Or uh, is there more? Like, is there a chap award? Is it? Yeah, it's um, it's a little more condensed. There's sort of a uh, an initial reaching out to HUD with a letter of interest, and then we start working with them, um, and uh, then uh, they submit uh, the the conversion plan. Um, so they sort of it's much more informal up to the point of the financing plan conversion plan submission, and then we review that and uh, issue a a uh, a conversion approval. So do you think in, in these properties we're, we're looking at uh, that same sort of 50-50 split uh, of needing new debt and not needing new debt, or is this more new debt uh, in order to... So in the, in the mod rehab context, we're seeing more uh, folks who are doing bigger projects. Um, the Some of the mod rehab properties are more in need of, of capital investment. Not all. Lots of them are in... in good shape as well. Um, but it's a little more of a mix. Um, and uh, uh, the the rent sub wrap properties, for example, um, tended to be in better shape. Um, and so, so a lot more of them were, you know, just converting the, the subsidy stream onto the new pro- platform. The mod rehabs are having uh, more of a capital event. Um, more of a recapitalization and construction work involved. Okay. And as those mod rehabs come in, are there are there ones that that uh, you, by nature of the application, you can see that it's not going to work, and there's a there's a subset that's that's kind of more challenging, or um, or are there folks that drop out, or what, what kind of as as the applications come in, is it is it generally pretty promising? It is generally pretty promising. The Mm -hmm. mod rehabs are um, in the fortunate spot that the mod rehabs are not subject to the same budget neutrality rule that um, the PRACs and the public housing are. So in a number of cases, the mod rehab properties can also get a little bit of a rent bump. Um, And, uh, you know, we certainly see folks come in with a lot of enthusiasm and then they get distracted with the rest of their lives and then they resurface and, uh, you know, that kind of thing. Um, but uh, they, they, most of them have a path to conversion, um, and it's just a question of uh, when, are they, when are they ready and, and how quickly they come through the process. Okay. Is that rent bump that you mentioned, is that, uh, does that would the tenant pay more, or is that really just no. a, uh, it's a the, subsidy. It's a subsidy bump. So it supports the improvements to the property... Yep. But tenant is uh, unaffected. Yeah, certainly all of the tenants in properties that go through RAD, the end result is they're a Section 8 property. Um, so the tenants are paying 30% of their income uh, as the tenant portion of the rent. Um, there, are a few, uh, there, there are a few situations where tenants might see a higher rent. Um, in, in public housing, there is a concept of a ceiling rent. Um, and... Uh, Section 8 doesn't have that concept. So in public housing, if a tenant's income goes high enough, they hit the ceiling rent, and then they just pay the ceiling rent forever. Um, in Section 8, there isn't that concept, so they continue to pay 30% of their income. Um, and at some point, if their income really goes high, they may say, oh, it doesn't 
make sense to live in a Section 8 property, let's go out to the market because the market, in effect, has a ceiling rent. We don't call it that, the market rent. Um, but uh, uh, there are situations where uh, tenants paying 30% of their income would be paying more than what they could pay on the open market, so they move out of Section 8. And I'm interested, uh, <clears throat> we we often talk about how the multifamily market has been so strong and there's so much uh, demographic move towards rental and uh, or, or demographic demand and, and, and uh, um, it, it creates a lot of demand in the market as and, and, a, and a lot of need as rents have been going up faster than incomes. Have you have you seen the demand for RAD go up in a way uh, over recent years? Or? So certainly the interest in RAD is has been growing. Um, the uh, you know RAD is about preserving existing properties. So uh, and uh, there's certainly a lot of demand for those deeply assisted units across the country. So. Um, there isn't kind of a a demand driver of the way the, the way there is in terms of new construction or anything like that because we're talking about a finite portfolio, um, but there is definitely increasing interest in red and um, a, a steady flow of of new folks coming in uh, to to participate. Certainly, just keeping those units. Uh, in the rental population is huge, right? Because if those go yep. away, that demand um, uh, does not have a place to go. That's right. Are there alternatives to to RAD? You know, some other things that that owners are are starting to consider, maybe in projects that don't make as much sense for RAD. Sure. Yeah, there are actually um, in the public housing portfolio, there are a lot of tools that um, are available to housing authorities for how they can think about. Uh, their portfolios long term. Um, not all ha- not all properties are going to be able to tap into all of those tools. So there's still uh, a, a group of properties that none of the tools, quite honestly, work for. Um, but there are tools where a housing authority, in certain circumstances, uh, if the property is really obsolete, they can go through a process um, under public housing where they can get Section 8 uh, vouchers to uh, tear down and replace the property or to do a significant rehab. Um, and uh, they can also, you know, their abilities to convert public housing units to home ownership units and, and various things like that. Um, the These other options, um, all every option has pros and cons to it. Um, some of the uh, options like the obsolescence, and uh, it's under something called Section 18. Uh, it's called Demolition Disposition Authority. Um, that tends to produce a rent level that is higher than the RAD rents for most agencies across the country. Um, but you can only take advantage of the Section 18 authority in certain circumstances. Um, the advantage to RAD is it's much more generally available, but the rents aren't as uh, aren't as good because it's the budget neutral uh, revenue stream. Uh, so there, uh, there are some other options, um, but fundamentally the uh, the public housing portfolio also has some units where the the rad they're not eligible for the section 18 or some of the other options, and the numbers don't work out under rad given the revenue and their operating expenses 
to cover the 20-year capital needs, which is a requirement of participating in RED. Um, and so for those properties, there isn't necessarily a solution yet. Um, and uh, so there is a, a debate over at some point whether um, there may need to be uh, boosts to the RAD rents in some cases to allow those properties to, to work. We are trying to shrink that the size of that group as much as possible by creating more flexibilities within RAD and allowing uh, RAD participating housing authorities to uh, use resources they do have in creative ways. Um, when RAD was first created, people estimated that maybe 30% of the portfolio might be able to work in RAD. Today, we estimate 50, maybe 60% of the portfolio might be able to work through RAD. And a lot of that is due to the creativity of the housing authorities and their development teams and the tricks and tools that we have built into the RAD program to try to stretch the dollar. Well, and certainly it's seen you know, increasing interest sort of as represented by the raising of the, the cap on convertible mm -hmm. units and public housing. So what, what's been the impact of that, of that change? Sure. So the cap has gone up a couple times. It was in, when it was when RAD was first authorized. The cap was uh, sixty thousand public housing units, and it has been raised incrementally a, a number. Uh, I think it's three times now. Um, and uh, the last increase was up to four hundred fifty-five thousand units, um, which is the first time that the cap has actually been raised beyond the number of units that were on the waiting list to participate, um, which is kind of cool. Uh, because then we can be shifting uh, from managing quite so scarce a resource to opening it up and saying, if you're ready, come in. Um, when the cap w had a waiting list, we had to do a lot of things to say, like, if you're not ready to close, you need to. we need to take back your RAD authority and give it to the next person who might be ready to close. And we're only going to give you a certain amount of time to try to put your transaction together. And we're only going to let you apply for 9% low-income housing tax credits once, only one bite at the apple. And if you can't make it work, you have to give your RAD authority back. Um, all of those constraints meant that it was hard for a housing authority to really have an, a longer-term plan. Um, and so having the um, the cap at a place where we don't have a waiting list, we don't have, uh, we're not bumping up against it, is really opening it up for us to uh, do a revision of the RAD notice where we can take some of those constraints out. That's in process. Um, and opens it up so that housing authorities can really develop a longer-term plan for their entire portfolio, potentially, or a group of properties or something like that. So is that what's on the horizon for RAD then? Certainly, we are working on a revision to the RAD notice um, that will include um, opening it uh, opening it up this way, um, and it will include the uh, the rules for RAD for prax conversions. Um, and we're pretty close to done. It's going to be still a handful of of weeks before it's published, but uh, uh, I think we're getting pretty close. Um, so that's the most immediate future of RAD uh, piece. Uh, I think I'm really excited to see how the, the pracs uh, come in and we'll presumably be learning from the early ones and, and making tweaks there. Um, there are people who are doing some really exciting things on combining the Section 18 authority and RAD authority in order to make uh, deals work that wouldn't have worked with RAD by itself. Um, and uh, 
you know, people keep suggesting other programs that might be eligible for RAD. So we'll we'll see where that goes too. Well, that sounds like a lot of success, you know, in the not too distant past, and uh, things to look forward to in the future as well. Are there other things that you would want listeners to know about the program? I think one of the the really exciting things about the program is it's an opportunity for people to think about their portfolios and their properties um, in new ways. They can think about how do we best deliver on the affordable housing mission in our community? Is that moving the assistance to a different place? Is it tearing the building down and rebuilding a better building? Are there changes in the way we do, uh, you know, housing authority manages its business um, that's really stimulating a lot of creativity and a lot of uh, Im- impressive, thoughtful uh, grappling with the issues facing the the affordable housing portfolio. And uh, I find that really exciting, um, and it's exciting to be to be part of that um, and to be part of those uh, those efforts and also to be part of really improving the quality of life for the residents of these properties. The you know, folks who've put up with properties where there are all sorts of asthma triggers for their kids or um, there are no elevators to third floor walk-ups for elderly folks and uh, or, you know, just the cabinet doors are coming off in their kitchen or, or the boilers are unreliable. And not every housing authority has these problems, of course. There are lots of housing authorities that have properties in really good shape. Um, but there are lots of properties where they need attention and the residents deserve a better a better home. Tom, on that note, thank you so much uh, for coming in to talk about the RAD program with us. It's been a great conversation. Thanks for having me. Really appreciate being here. Yep, thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Freddie Mac Multifamily Podcast. If you're interested in more, be sure to follow us on LinkedIn, Twitter, and Facebook, and subscribe on iTunes and SoundCloud.